every single trauma is attached to a version of us that was not loved. That's the kind of the basis of, of what a trauma is, is like some version of us got wronged or, or an emotional loop left open. And so when we can find this trauma, we have to find the version of us that holds it and go back and, and not exile that version of us. Like for me, the addiction a long time, I was like, get away. Mm -mm, I'm not that guy anymore. Like bullshit. <laughs> that guy lives inside of me. And, and until I can love on him and say, hey, bud, what's going on? Like, what do you need right now? You know, that's when the, the intensity and the duration of these traumatic, traumatic memories or triggers decreases massively. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Flow Over Fear podcast, where it is our mission to help you to rise above fear and realize your ultimate potential in leadership and life. I'm your host, Adam Hill, and it is my goal to share with you the human side of high performance. My guests share their experience with fear, anxiety, struggle, challenge, and most importantly, despite all of it, how they rose above it to achieve incredible results. So if you're ready to rise up, let's get started. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Flow Over Fear. Thank you so, so much for being here. I have a great guest today, and we're going to dig deep into you know, a world of transformation and uh, transcendence. And my guest today, Sam Gibbs Morris, is a speaker, a spiritual teacher, men's conscious relationship coach, retreat facilitator, and psychedelic guide. Uh, and he's the founder of Transcend Breathwork. Uh, Sam has aligned his life purpose with his gifts to hold space for other humans to heal and expand their conscious awareness by transcending their edges and enlarging their capacity to hold, receive, and experience the totality of their lives, becoming an unwavering, conscious, embodied presence in their lives. While he has been on a journey of spiritual awakening for his entire life, his journey to consciousness really started when his tennis career ended at the age of 23. And we'll dig in his, into his story today and dig into what he's doing now to help and heal the world. Uh, Sam, I appreciate you being here. Thank you so, so much. Adam, so great to be here, man. Looking forward to this. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited to dig in. I know you've got, you have an incredible story and you're doing incredible service to the world, you know, by, you. by helping others through, through these processes. I know certainly from my own, you know, recovery from alcoholism and, and, and everything that it, it, it's, it's a battle. And, um, and I know you talk a lot about battles and, and, you know, and how we fight a war. Um, and I'd love to dig a little bit more into that. Um, yeah. but I noticed that you have, you know, in, in your, in, in a lot of your content, you have, you know, transcend, you drop the E what yeah. is that? What does that all mean? <laughs> uh, I do that with a, with, a, with a few a few words that I uh, deem important: uh, yeah. committed, transcend. Um, there's a couple others in there, but what I what it, what it, it surrenders another one surrenders when it first came to me after a uh, I did my first bufo ceremony, five meo DMT, and I was so deeply like just smacked in the face with this idea and this. Um, embodiment of surrender, really. Like, you know, it yeah. went from being theory to actual, like, wow, just happened. So much so that I went home and I said, I'm going to buy the domain surrender.com. And it was taken, of course. Right. <laughs> and so I'm like, how can I get creative here? And so I dropped the E out of surrender. And then it hit me like, wow, in order to fully surrender, you really have to drop the ego. You have to get mm. the ego in check. In order to transcend, you have to get the ego in check. In order to be fully committed, You've got to get your ego in check. And so all these words that I spell without an E, and you'll see it through all my copy, is reminder to myself and to whoever's reading it that, that in order for this to happen, the ego's got to get out of the way. And not not death. It's not ego death. I don't, I don't, I don't subscribe to the ego death, but I know, but mm. the ego does need to be kind of, you know, right-sized. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. And I, I want to kind of expand on that concept because, you know, a lot of us think about the ego. A lot of us interpret the ego as something bad, like we should... Yeah. We should, you know, totally just avoid being an egotistical person right. or what have you. But yep. what, what, what is the ego really? And how the should ego we is, uh, our ultimate survival mechanism? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's really like, and it's, that's all the ego knows one thing and it's survive. Yeah. And in order to do that, a lot of times the ego will get very heavy handed with a lot of like safety, a lot of um, resistance, a lot of fear. And so uh, what that can look like in life is, you know, 
destructive behavior or self-sabotaging behavior, uh, ruined <laughs> relationships, f- FOMO, fear of missing out, you know, like looking re- a lot of regret. And so, you know, to say, and it is the ego's got lumped into that, like, oh, he's an egomaniac, or that's egotistical behavior. And yeah, that exists. But the <laughs> ego, when we when we back off of that, the ego is our survival mechanism. And when we can get it on our team, that's what I, I feel like. There's two. There's two definite like sides of the ego spectrum. Yeah. One is which I call the destructive ego, which is that heavy-handed, really kind of the the, the running the show and and ruining your life. And then there's the noble ego. And the noble ego is the one that's on your team, supporting you in all your behavior, supporting you in your purpose, supporting you in your mission, your relationships, your self-care, all that stuff. Yeah. So, And with regard to that, noble, I love that concept, the destructive ego versus the noble ego, because it kind of separates it out for people. What, is, what does it look like to have a noble ego? How do, how do we tap into that? How can we tap into that? Yeah. Um, what it looks like. Um, it looks like a lot, a lot of really like beneficial and good decisions. Sure. <laughs> a lot of, like a lot of, <laughs> a lot of behavior that really like supports being a good human, being yeah. a really grounded, conscious man. Uh, like, mm. you know, divine masculine is, is an example of the noble ego. It's when, you know, it's when the, the unconscious is actually there. The 95% that's unconscious is actually there supporting our habits. So we have the reprogramming of the subconscious mm. and the ego. And everyone's on the same team. Now, to get there, it takes, um, I mean, it takes the work. You know, when you talk about, like, quote, right. unquote, the work, you know, that's really what it's about is how do I get all systems in my body, all all relationships that I have in, in a right and, and good and noble place or a right and good beneficial place. Um, that looks like, you know, breath work's huge, meditation's huge, uh, mm-hmm. journaling's huge, doing, there's a great book called Existential Kink, which is about uh, tapping into the, the, so in the book, she talks about um, having is evidence of wanting. So if you say like, oh, I, I, I struggle with scarcity or I, I, you know, I, my weight's an issue mm-hmm. and I've been, it's been that way for 10 or 15 years. So, and I've done all the things I've gone to Peru and sat with ayahuasca and I've talked to coaches here and therapists and it's all still here is because there's some part of that ego, that nervous system that actually wants that to exist because it's a safe, predictable, familiar place. Right. Right. Okay. That, yeah. So that, that's. That's uh, and and I want to dig into all that because there's there's a lot to unpack there the breath work the you know the the journeys all the journaling all that kind of stuff but you know I want to kind of dig into your origin story a bit too because uh-huh. you know obviously to do this work you you went through a lot of hell in your own life and and <laughs> and, and and certainly that that's the origin story and you know being that this is a show called Flow Over Fear I want to get into the kind of the fear aspect of it where okay. where that showed up how you or, or how how the Sam Gibbs Morris that shows up here today, how you originated, where you came from. Yeah. Um, thank you for the space. Um, it's funny. I, I, when we first got on here, Flow Over Fear, I used to I actually sit on the board of a consulting firm called Five to Flow. Oh, really? Oh, wow. And it's based in the Flow Research Collective and all the principles of Stephen Kotler and, and, and that whole thing about the, the flow triggers and, and flow, uh, the, the, the kind of the, the flow cycle of, you know, introduction, mastery challenge, introduction, mastery challenge, you know. I love that. So, yeah, yeah. I want to dig into that because I'm I'm a huge fan of Stephen Cutler. So yeah, please. Yeah, please. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, the flow. If, if you get a chance, I don't know if you've done the Flow Research Collective. It's like an eight week. It's an eight week course all about flow, and it goes into all the things like from like notifications on your phone to environmental distractions to to all the things that take us out of flow. That sounds incredible. Um, so my origin story. Um, where'd the fear come from? The fear came from uh, when I when you introduced me and you say that you know my spiritual path has been since the day I was born. Mm. Um, obviously, the day I was born, I didn't know that. Uh, <laughs> you know, doing this work and diving in and, and really like going inward a lot, um, it's become clear to me that that's what, that's what happened. That's, that's the way it's been. And the reason I say that is because um, for me, immediately when I was born, breathing was a challenge for me. Um, really, really severe asthma, really, really severe food allergies, which cause anaphylaxis, which is the throat closing up. Um, I had a tendency from about, from ages, you know, five to 15, probably where I would choke on food a lot. Like I had the Heimlich maneuver done on me, um, wow. five or six times. So all this stuff goes back to breath. My umbilical cord was around my head, emergency C-section when I was born. So immediately, uh, breath was a complicated relationship for me. Mm. And so, um, when you look at uh, respiration, respire is of the spirit. 
you know, inspiration, respiration, that, that, that the root word of breath is spirit. And so when we talk about a spiritual awakening, like a breath and spiritual awakenings and spiritual practices are directly tied to Israel. So I had to, I pretty much was born on this path of respiration, of learning to breathe, of, of being able to uh, control my breath. Cause that, and that's where the fear came from is that, um, you know, I would be in the hospital three, four weeks at a time, uh, maybe yeah. twice a year, once in the winter, once in the spring. And I grew up in Vermont where the pollen was really, really heavy. And so, um, you know, I remember one time I was like uh, little league baseball, so I don't know, eight or nine years old. And I ran around the bases. I had a triple, ran around and ended up on third base and I could not catch my breath. And hmm. to the point where I, my lungs stopped working and I passed out and I had, you know, I have one memory of my dad in my dad's arms carrying me across the fields of the parking lot. And the next memory I have is waking up in a tent in the hospital wow. and freaking out. And so my fear was based in air. Um, you know, am I gonna am I gonna make it through this day without having an asthma attack? Uh, food. Am I gonna go to this birthday party and eat a cake that has some sort of nut in it? Um, you know, if, like again, food. Am I gonna like swallow this and, and choke? Like if you know something gets stuck in my throat. So I had a lot of fear of of the world, and I also had a lot of um, which, you know, distrust and fear are kind of like best buds. Sure. And so I learned very early on, and and I, and I again, like it's. You know, doing this work, you look back at the time. I didn't know what was happening, but I di I didn't trust my body. Uh, my body was it was it was it was not like the lungs didn't work, the throat didn't work. I couldn't eat what I wanted. Um, you know, there's bullying involved on it, and so there was shame there. Um, all this stuff, the experiences of childhood, made me very scared of not only my the world, friends and food and air, but of my own body. So I'm living in this body that I'm scared of is going to betray me, and it did a lot of times. And, and thanks, I mean, so blessed and grateful that my parents were attentive in there and able to get me, I mean, we lived in the woods in Vermont, so it was, you know, 45 minutes, 70 mile an hour car ride at 2 a.m. to get to the hospital, uh, meet the doctor there. So it was right. a little hairy at times, but um, this is where that fear came from, was just not being safe, not feeling safe ever in my body and in the world. Yeah, and that's, that's a fear, I mean, that not a lot of people can relate to. I mean, there are people out there, of course, that have allergies, but to be afraid of the world around you. I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, where many people are afraid of being bullied or, or being afraid of rejection or, or those kinds of things that come in that are ego related, but these are really life threatening things for you. Yeah. That's heavy. Yeah. And, yeah. And I mean, the way, the way that I landed on that, um, was through recovery from addiction mm -hmm. AA, you know, I, I, I battled it for a long time in and out of AA and, and not really paying attention, not really wanting to be there. Uh, a lot of like AA, 20 plus times in jail, six rehabs. And finally, when I was serious about it, I was in the rooms of AA and you hear a lot of these stories um, that, you know, alcoholic household, physical, verbal, uh, sexual abuse. And I'm sitting there like, I don't, I, I don't know why I'm here. Like what, what got me that like, what am I just like, so I, a lot of times just said, like, I was just having a lot of fun and it got out of control. Yeah. You know, that, that was the only thing I could land on as to why I'm in this room with these people that I don't really have a much of a history in common with. Yeah. And again, they tell you, you know, look for the similarities, not the differences. And I'm like, I'm looking and I'm not right. seeing much. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so what it forced me to do was like, okay, so, you know, there's a lot like childhood, very important. And it's like, okay, so I, at that point, 35, 36, you tell me, ask me about my childhood. It was amazing. I, I was a, I was a high level tennis player, ranked number one in the state of Vermont, went to college on a scholarship, skiing every winter, played a lot of golf, went on trips, like lots of love in the household parties around, like wasn't really much to, to say that I thought was bad. And that's all true. That existed. And on the other side of it was what we just talked about. I was always scared, complete fear-based, um, you know, several near-death experiences by the time I was 10 years old. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm so glad you bring that up because because you know I, I I share a similar experience at least in you know I came up in a very nice house a great household mm -hmm. I, I had two parents who loved me I went to college I went to college on a scholarship for cello you know for music mm -hmm. not sports yeah. but Same. it was just like this this thing was you know it, it was it was a great life and it still led to alcoholism and self destruction and like all of these terrible habits. And I was the same way going in and out of recovery. I was thinking to myself, I can't relate to these people. They had yeah. terrible childhoods, all this trauma. I mean, like, you know, it, it was like this trauma envy that I had, like, yeah, they don't <laughs> have enough. So I got to go out and get more. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, right. so, so anybody that's listening that may be struggling with that, you know, it's like, you know, there, 
I mean, we don't have to have the comparable traumas. I mean, we just, there, there's inside of ourselves. I don't know if this relates to you or if you can reflect on this, but is there something that, you know, when we're dealing with our own trauma, uh, is there some process that we should be going through to, to, to rationalize it or, or to justify it or, or, or validate it in order to get, to get the healing we need? Mm -hmm. Um, that's a really great question. Um, I, I think that what I'm seeing in that a question is the attention to it. Um, I think a justifying might mean like it, it kind of takes on like a victim thing. Like I'm, 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 I should be this way. I get to be this way, you know, yeah. and, and victim, like, I think everybody goes through the victim phase when they first start looking at their traumas. Like, of course I'm like, I'm like this because of that. And, right. you know, and as you move through that phase and into the ownership, like this happened for me and um, <clears throat> you know, this, Again, the, the levels of consciousness around it. Um, I think that in order to fully address and clear these traumas, you know, you can't look away. That's the mm -hmm. bottom line. You know, and that's what alcoholism is, is looking away. That's what addiction mm -hmm. is. It's like, oh, I'm not going to look over there. Like, I'd rather look at this pile of cocaine over here. This is better. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. And so um, when it comes time to do the work, you got to hold that vision. Like I always say, stare that SOB in the face and don't blink. Stare that monster mm. in the face and that SOB is going to blink first. You know, yeah. and this is what, and this, and we go, we can get into our, the talk about chief archetype, king archetype, warrior archetype. The one basis of all these is do not look away. The true yeah. king does not look away from his kingdom, from himself, from his women, from whatever it is. Mm. You know, and that's when it comes to trauma and healing this trauma because it's never going to go away. Like mm -hmm. you can, you, there's light, it, the, the big effects and trauma. Yeah. That goes away. But I mean, right now I'm, I'm, there's some stuff coming up for me right now and it's not nearly as big as it was 11 years ago, but it's right. still there. And, and again, it's like, I can say like, oh, I'm so tired of this, you know, or yeah. I can say, okay, let's go. Like, well, yeah. it's another opportunity for me to, to expand and uh, ground and, and tap into what the next evolution of me is. So it sounds like you're, you don't, you never get over it. You never get over it necessarily. You have to work with it. And, and once you have the tools, you can work with it and you can face yeah, it. Yeah. And I think, you know, you do, but you do get over it. Like you do yeah. get over it in the sense of like, it, it's not, it doesn't make you a victim anymore. It doesn't control your life anymore. And like when the topic comes up, whatever it may be, you know, you don't get sad. Like you're like, oh, like you can, you can hold it in your body. You can hold, you have the space and the capacity for it to live because, Every single trauma is attached to a version of us that was not loved. Yeah. And that's like, that's the kind of the basis of, of what a trauma is, is like some version of us got um, wronged or, or an emotional loop left open. And so when we can find this trauma, we have to find the version of us that holds it mm -hmm. and go back and, and not exile that version of us. Like for me, the addiction, a long time, I was like, get away. Mm -mm. I'm not that guy anymore. Right. Bullshit. <laughs> that guy lives inside of me. And, and until I can love on him and say, hey, bud, what's going on? Like, what do you need right now? You know, that's when the, the intensity and the duration of these traumatic, traumatic memories or triggers decreases massively. Mm. Well, yeah. You, and you said something about bringing love to it. And I think that's, that's, that, that really caught my attention because I've, I've heard that a lot recently. Yeah. Um, you know, within, within our pain, within our challenges, within the things that hurt us, I've heard a lot like bring love to it is can you expand on that a bit and like just talk about maybe how we can do that yeah um you know it's uh it's inner child work it's parts <laughs> work it's um it's it's looking at um so shame for example let's use shame uh, yeah. shame starts when we as children um feel rejection or humiliation around attempting to meet a basic need so for me it was breath you know, I'm trying to breathe playing basketball or even just walking around the hallways. And, you know, I have to pull out my inhaler as, a, as an eight-year-old. And the kid next to me makes fun of me for using my inhaler. <laughs> Immediately, I feel humiliation and rejection because I'm trying to breathe. And so, <laughs> therefore, I must be wrong. Uh, shame on me. Shame in me. Like, I'm a, there's something. I am broken. I am different. I am not that. Um, so, that version then gets closed off. Like I shut, I shut off that version of me. Like, Oh, close down. Like that's yeah. can't mm -mm, no. And then when it's time to go heal that, when that comes up again, you know, that version of me, the, the little league baseball, the kid that woke up in the tent, I routinely to this day 
go back and grab that kid's hand, give him a hug and say, we're going to, we're going to walk out of the hospital right now. Mm. And that's wow. love. Like show him that like, it's safe to be out in the world and look, look at what, look at who we become. Like, look at what we get to do. You know, you don't have, and I lived in that hospital room for fuck decades. Yeah. You know, yeah. to the point where I would actually, there was a period in my, especially during my addiction, but like if I had to have surgery, there was a part of uh, me that would celebrate. Cause like, I get to go to the hospital. Awesome. You know, cause it felt, it was the only place in the world that felt like safe for me from the environment and from other people. <laughs> and not to mention like when you're in hospital, you get a lot of attention. And so another thing that came from all that is that, um, struggling essentially became a love language for me. Like mm. that's my, you know, wow. I would, I would create chaos and struggle in my life because I recognized my, my little kid, um, imprinted that, um, you know, again, a lot of love in the household, no shortage of that. And when I'm having an asthma attack is a little extra. Yeah. And so going forward in life, it's like, oh, when things are calm and peaceful and good and I got money and the girlfriend's good and, and the career's good, it's like, uh, you know, I don't know about this. <laughs> like, it doesn't feel the, I don't feel the intensity of the love right now. So wow. I drop a grenade, sabotage. Wow. So, sabot so, so when we talk about yeah. going back, I'll close with this. When we go back to working through this traumas and the love piece, you know, you're going to find a trauma like, okay, I have a trauma from X. Okay, how old were you when that when you first remember that happening? Uh, probably eleven or twelve. Great, go back to being eleven or twelve. Find a picture of yourself when you're eleven or twelve, and spend mm. time with that person. Spend time with that version of you, and just be there and say, "What do you need right now?" And listen, and hug, and hold, and and eye contact. And and over time, what that that does is, you know, in the quantum, we we heal seven generations back and seven generations forward. You know, we're mm. healing so much when we just go back and give that version of us that didn't get what it needed, we give it what it needed now. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm feeling that a lot right now too, just because, you know, looking back, you know, you're, 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 you're causing me to reflect on my childhood and <laughs> some of the pain I felt even back then of just, you know, feeling afraid of talking to people or, or, or feeling socially awkward and, and all of those things. And I've never thought, uh, I mean, to, to go back and, and, and send love to myself, but then that's, I think there's there, and even just to, just thinking about that in that in this brief moment, it, it brings up just a lot of, I don't know, it feels a lot more. I feel a lot more freedom in that sense. Mm, that's yeah, that's very powerful. Well, yeah, because yeah. you get like that that version of you essentially didn't feel like it had permission to exist. Mm -hmm. And so when yeah. you talk about it, when we go back and like, oh, like I, uh, there it is, the 13 year old kid that was, you know, too shy to go talk to the girl or whatever it was, yeah. in that in this moment, like you and I in this moment right now that little, that version of you that felt no permission is getting permission. And that's mm -hmm. the freedom you feel. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's powerful. I, I, and I, I, I very much appreciate that because, um, yeah, I mean, when you bring up the shame that, that was kind of my flavor of suffering in the day, you know, and, and I think maybe it's for a lot, maybe a lot of us feel that because, yeah. uh, that, that very definition, once you're naming it, it it's, it's powerful. Um, and you know, you, uh, so so you you had this childhood of of you know what with challenges with you know uh, with breathing and 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 all of that and and um and and you got into tennis um and that that kind of then you became a high level tennis player yeah can you kind of share a little bit about how you went from you know the uh you know being in the hospital many times mm -hmm. finding comfort there to kind of becoming a tennis star on a college scholarship you know yeah. that kind of thing yeah so um. You know, part of that um, feeling shame and different than my peers um, and um, running around in soccer, basketball, baseball, football, um, you know, there was a lot of feeling of like a burden in those sports, yeah. team sports. Um, what if I'm, you know, running down the field with a ball and I, and I have an asthma attack, I, I'm going to let my team down. And it happened, um, you know, and kids would make fun of me. Um, so I felt very, um, you know, being in a team environment, although I love those sports and I still do, it was very hard to be in that environment, um, with that kind of burden on my shoulders. And so then I, uh, I found tennis. I, uh, and it, 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 it so it's a sport where you run around for about maybe 15 seconds and then you get to rest and you switch sides every, every two games. And so you get this, get these constant rests, these bursts, these short bursts, which I was okay with. I was fine with that. It was the long distance stuff that would really tucker me out. And, um, it, it, it's, it was, I was out there alone. So yeah. I didn't have like that noise in my head about like, oh, basically you suck, like you're different, you're broken, all that stuff. And, you know, it, it turns out that 
I had good hand coordination and I was fast. And so it, 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 all things aligned and it was, you know, tennis was my first love, a saving grace of mine. And also, um, as most things, there's a bit of a shadow side to it is that it kind of, it covered up for a long time, some underlying stuff that then when I stopped playing tennis came rushing to the forefront. Hmm. So it became kind of it. So that became kind of your addiction or your, your, your yeah, outlet. And I wouldn't even, I mean, it's, it's really hard for me to say an addiction because there wasn't sure. anything destructive about it. And it got sure. me to a lot of good, like I got a lot of travel out of it and, um, it was, there's nothing really bad about it. I just know that like, and it was everything I needed, you know? And then when yeah. it was time for tennis to go away, it was time for me to look at some other things that kind of catapulted me into, man, it was the, the rite of passage for, for me was right. tennis going away. And, you know, tennis was, you know, I was from the moment, um, I mean, very early on, I don't remember ever not, but I was going to be in the pro tour, follow Andre Agassi and Pete Sampras. Like that was it. And then I got to college my freshman year and I was playing basketball and blew out my knee, uh, <sighs> playing in, in uh, Greek, Greek league basketball. And so that was my first, like in 15 years, first time, not consistently playing tennis. And mm -hmm. it was real hard emotionally, mentally. And also I kind of saw what life was like without having that, like, cause I was, I mean, I was all about it, like train in the morning, train in the afternoon, go to sleep at night, never drink before a match, never, you know, really, really buttoned up and like dedicated to this. And I got a glimpse of what it was like to, you know, chase girls around college and, and drink beers and have fun. And I was like, ah, so th that, uh, looking back, I can say that was probably the first point when I was like, I don't know if pro tour is going to be for me. Cause I, I, practice when i was in high school a lot of the professionals would come to my high school to practice and i you know that 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 dedication is woof you know you yeah. know with the cello you get to a certain level it's like this is you gotta make a choice here <laughs> absolutely yeah and that that feels true with with anything and i mean like yeah a, I, I mean i feel like with, with cello and and you know triathlon or or tennis or anything like that yeah competing at a high level it requires everything that you have and almost to that you know point where you you can't be active in in that stuff. So yeah. So when you you, you blow out your knee and you couldn't play tennis anymore, and no. So I I that was my freshman year, and so that was the yeah. winter. Um. Uh. So I had the ACL surgery, and then I missed my freshman year. I came back and I played on the team again, sophomore to junior year. I was number one on the tennis team in my college, and uh, then my senior year came around. And I was a, I was, I was a, so I, I was a late birthday, December. And then I also did a fifth year of high school. So I was essentially like a year and a half or two years ahead of most of my classmates. So senior year in college, I was 22, 23. And so, you know, at, at that time, um, I kind of missed the boat on the pro tour. And yeah. so I, you know, I, the tennis coach calls me into his office one day. This is like halfway through the season, senior year. And, uh, he's like, Sam, he's like, you're you're here and I'm not gonna take your scholarship, but you're not on the tennis team anymore. Like I can you're burnt out. Wow. Like you've been doing this wow. every day for twenty years, you know, it's or or fifteen, eighteen years. Like it's you're burnt out. Um just it's okay. I understand. Uh you're more interested in the social scene and like, you know, you're about to graduate college. I understand, I get it, but the, the tennis career is over. It's, you're not you're not really bringing much to the team. And he <laughs> was right. You know, like yeah. at first I was like, oh, boy, this is not good. And then I, after a second, I was like, yeah, you know, I, I, I feel it too. Like I'm not into this anymore. Yeah. And that's so when see, yeah. that, that, so that kind of, I'll call it what it was, a void uh, left by tennis got filled with drugs and alcohol. And yeah. from that point forward, it, you know, it was a, a kind of a build up to, for maybe two or three years of like just hard party and no real consequences. But then at about age 25, 26 is when it started to get pretty, pretty rough. Yeah. And that, that's the, that's, I mean, that's the insidious nature of it. I mean, it yep. always feels like, you know, you, you, it, it starts out as, as, you know, it doesn't feel like you're, you can't, you don't have any indication that you're gonna be a problematic drinker or no. a problematic drug user or anything like that. I mean, I don't know if this was the case with your parents. My parents didn't have any alcohol in the house. They had two Coronas in the fridge that were for mm. guests just in case they wanted booze. Yeah. And, but yeah, so, so it's like starting to drink. I don't know. Did you get that impression that you just didn't did you did or did you feel it right away did you feel like this no. is gonna hit me yeah no, no. i mean i so my parents i mean they were wine drinkers and my dad was you know drink rum and they they my parents were partiers like but it yeah. was always there was never like a it wasn't a bad thing there was no you know it was just again it was like parties like my birthday was parents birthday and like summers were full of like concerts on the lawn and um that being said there was no alcohol or addiction that i had i was following 
um, mm-hmm. maybe a couple generations back, but you know, I was the first one in the family that was like, this is full blown alcoholism. And yeah. at first I, I didn't, I, I actually didn't even think about it. I was amazing alcoholic until like fuck 35, almost, almost 12 years in, you know, yeah. and like, and looking back, I can say now, like, yeah, that was not normal behavior, but in the moment, no, I mean, one is like every, my, all my roommates were doing, we were all doing the same thing and there were, but then you look at it and there's like one or two incidences where I was kind of known as the party guy. You want to have a good time? Go out with Sam. You know, yeah. So like at the time I'm like, yeah, woo, rock star. <laughs> you know, right. but looking back, it's like, oh, I see what was happening there. Yeah. And then over time it gets, like you said, like it's a lot of fun with maybe one or two problems about half fun, half problems, mostly problems. That that yeah. was it for me. Yeah. And, and I know, I know the problem, the problems part, it, it, I mean, it always, it, it usually goes down a, a similar path. Lots of, lots of, you know, uh, um, you know, lots of dark times, lots of jail, lots of all sorts of stuff. What was it? Um, was there anything in particular for you that, that gave you the, gave you the, the, the motivation you needed to get sober to, 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 to get sober or, or just was the bottom for you? Yeah. Um, it's a yes. And, uh, so yeah. within that, you know, 23 to 38, that 15, 18 years, 20 to 38, um, yeah, there was a lot of broken relationships, a lot of lost careers, uh, suicide attempt, um, 20 times in jail, eight nights was the longest I ever spent in jail, six trips to rehab. There was a lot of destruction and, and, uh, <laughs> physical, emotional, mental pain. And then it was, uh, November 22nd, 1st. 2012. And, uh, I was in North Carolina and at 4am all my, my friends, you know, friends, quote unquote, uh, <laughs> they all left and I was sitting there at my kitchen table with a bunch of cocaine and a bottle of rum. And it just, it kind of like all the, like you talk about, like in those moments, like all those moments, all of a sudden kind of knocked on my door and said, Whoa, like, you want to continue doing this or do you want to stop? And yeah. in that moment, I just, I said, I can't go on. I can't, I, I, I saw my parents' faces. I saw my sister's faces. I saw, I saw all, it, it all was right there and present with me. And that was it. Uh, in that moment, I called up 911 and said, you need, you need to take me to the, the psych ward. Stayed there, went right to rehab. And that was the last drink I ever had. And I mean, I've never once since that moment had any sort of desire to have a drink of alcohol. It was just, you know, I wouldn't even say it was, it, it was definitely low. I, I had been like, you know, I had a suicide attempt and I had DUIs and eight nights in jail. Like there were some bottoms that I hit. This was more so just the end for me. Yeah. Um, it, yeah. It, it, and that, that was that, that was that. Would you say it was kind of the cliche, like uh sick and tired of being sick and tired kind of thing? Yeah. yeah. Times, times like 1000. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. Just, I just, you know, I was just so tired of the pain and like, I just knew yeah. and I was scared. Like I was like, I don't, you know, alcohol is such a crutch. I was like, yeah. I don't know how this is going to look, but I know I can't continue like this. Yeah. Well, congratulations on on almost eleven years here. That's, Thank that's you, incredible. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, um. So I, I I was I'm also a 2012 baby. I nice. got sober in January. So awesome. congrats. Hey everyone, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you've been listening for a while, you know how important community and mentorship is to living a life of abundance above your fears. If you want to connect with me, hear about new offerings, episodes, and strategies to live with conviction, courage, and clarity, then sign up for my newsletter now. It's a way to stay connected to me outside of social media and bring a little empowerment to your inbox and maybe a few dad jokes here and there. Sign up now at adamcliffordhill.com. Now back to the show. There's just times in our lives, it seems, that we, we finally get willing and that willingness is just so, so important. And I never realized that until, you know, I got, I got sober and I had the same kind of, I had the same kind of feeling when I got sober. Mine, mine was more of like a bottom, like I, I'm in a DUI, I'm in jail. I'm like, I can't yeah. do this anymore. I'm a danger to myself and others. But it was just like this, like, yeah, I can't, I'm, I'm completely willing now. I'm giving myself over to this process. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to like dance in. I'm just going to do it. And, and yeah, the desire kind of goes away at that point or the desire at least for me too when went away yeah um it's incredible so it, yeah i think I, one other yeah. thing about that willingness like yeah i had the willingness to stop and there was also behind that fueling that was this willingness to be a beginner at, mm. at life you know I, I moved all the way across the country to san francisco didn't know anybody didn't have a job um left corporate america and went in to be a personal trainer 
and you know that willingness to be a beginner allowed me to rapidly excel in the first couple of years. You know, with like going to a city where I I built I, I went to A meetings instead of bars, and I went to I got into like essentially like the first step onto the path that I'm on now as far as career and purpose goes, and huh. so you know that willingness and then that okay being okay with being a beginner was massive for me in the beginning. Wow. So so you're so. It, it really wasn't like trying to fit the square peg in the round hole then. It was just like, I'm going to try and fit sobriety into the life I have now. It's just like, I'm going to let everything go. I just, be a complete beginner. Complete, yeah. wipe the slate clean. Like I, I had no address. I had no money. I had barely any clothes. Like it was like, you know, it, it almost wasn't a choice, but it, it, you know, it was yeah. a choice. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess we always have a choice and, and, you know, it can go dark if we make the, you know, make, continue make yeah. those choices, but um, yeah, so I, I, I kind of want to get into cause, because where you've come since then, I mean, uh, and I don't want to gloss over obviously the big amount of transformation that you've had since then, but mm-hmm. what you're doing now is, is so powerful from, you know, coaching, coaching men, um, you know, uh, to transcend, uh, you know, on, and find their, you know, and, and find and, and rediscover masculinity in a new way, breathwork, psychedelics. Yep. I, I want to touch on that on like the, your concept of like transcending your edges or getting yeah. to the edge. So can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, you know, edges, some people call them triggers, some people um, sabotage behaviors, behaviors, it's patterns, mm-hmm. it's things that don't serve us anymore. And what happens a lot of times is like, is that we'll meet an edge and then recoil from it. And so we end up like, and then we have this, you know, really small lane that we live in where these edges that we're afraid of, or we don't want to look at, or they seem too big for us to handle essentially become a prison for us. So relationships is a big one for a lot of guys, uh, women too, but you know, I work with guys. And so, um, you know, a lot of guys aren't ready to see what a relationship will show them about the mother wound, about childhood rejection, about all this stuff. And so they end up, uh, not only not showing up for themselves in the relationship, selling themselves out, but then the woman the woman feels unsafe. The woman feels yeah. rejected or abandoned because the guy's so shut down. Because these edges that he has that he hasn't looked at, shame, insecurity, uh, I'm not enough, the three big ones. Hmm. Um, he can't break free from those stories, so that's how he shows up. And so when I say transcend your edges, it means basically go out to that edge and stay there for a minute. Go out hmm. to that edge and stand on that edge and don't look away. And that, and what that does is then it, it allows that edge to soften and you become, you, you build the muscle, you build the capacity in your nervous system. You know, it comes back, it really comes down to nervous system. How well are you able to get to that edge, become dysregulated and then bring yourself back into regulation, you know, vagal toning, uh, breath work, um, there's so many things you can do. And so what happens when you stand on that edge and you tran and that's when you transcend that edge because then Mm -hmm. the edge, then the edge pushes out. So now you have this lane that you were in before because of all your insecurities and traumas and all that. Every time you do this, it expands, expands, expands. So within that lane now, what gets to go there? Your life, your woman, Mm -hmm. your kids, your career, your purpose, your whatever. Um, But when, when you have only this much room to work with, it's not a very, exciting existence yeah it's a and it sounds like you're kind of you're you, you know that that it's living in a comfort zone and and the more we're trying to live in that comfort zone that the more that comfort zone is collapsing on us right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. i mean uh, yeah comfort zone it's i wouldn't even say it's that comfortable because it's, <laughs> no, it's you know, <laughs> <laughs> like it, but I, I get what you're saying yeah it, it's yeah. the thing about it is is that we it's the back to the ego is that uh the ego thinks that that is the ego makes up that that's doing what you need to do to survive because it's familiar and predictable. So ego does not like unfamiliarity and unpredictability that to the ego is like, well, we're about to die no matter what it is. Reptilian brain kicks in. And yeah. so when we can expand the, those edges and, and, and then the feedback loop to the ego is like, Oh, it's, it's okay out here. Like we can do this. <laughs> and that's what getting the ego on your team is all about. And that's uh-huh. when you transcend your edges and you step into the, the fullest capacity that you can to hold what, so let's, the, it's all about the feminine energy. The feminine mm-hmm. energy is literally the feminine being in front of you. And also life force itself is a feminine energy. And so if you're closed off to either of those things, you're closed off to all of it. And so 
what I do is I work with men to say, how well can I hold this woman in her storms, in her chaos, in her feminine energy that's foreign to my body? Because I like the yeah. structure and the, and the, the checklists. Uh, how well can I create a culture in my relationship, a container that all of her is welcome? The joy, the pain, the, 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 the pleasure, the ecstasy, the, all the things that women bring. How can I stand there, be with her in the darkness, in the depth, in the, in the light, in all of it, and hold <laughs> my ground and hold my, hold my pole, my masculine frame? Mm. Wow. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's touching on something pretty powerful that, that, you know, I wanted to dig into too, because that, that's another thing, like in addition to the ego that kind of gets like, there's a, there's a stigma against it, like masculine en energy and things like that, that, you know, people might think are negative, but how, how do, I mean, you, you talk about feminine energy being that life force around us. Um, and where does masculine energy fit in? How do we balance the two? What, 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 uh, what are we looking for in that relationship? So what we're looking for is the, yeah, it's, it's a balance. It, I would say it's more of an allowance. Um, mm -hmm. How well am I able to allow all of it? So this is what masculine consciousness is essentially is like, is like, it's, it's a 360 degree awareness that comes from the masculine center, the lower Dantian, the core, your masculine core. How, <laughs> how, how well can you be, how, how well can you hold and be with all the things? And so with, with and so within yourself, um, you know, you have masculine dominant, feminine dominant men. Um, and it doesn't mean that they're straight or gay. It just means that there's the, the balances are different inside everybody. And, um, the the more that the man can be in his primary energy, the masculine energy, the more mm -hmm. that the feminine energy gets to do what the feminine energy wants to do, which is love and be energy and flow and rest and uh, have fun and be joyful. And then the balance or the allowance is like, okay, the masculine energy is there. You know, I, lo I look at, I do this a lot, like with my clients, whereas um, if you're listening on the radio, it's like a horse stance is like a Qigong thing where you're, oh, yeah. you're thinking about the container that you're holding and what, what spread your arms out and what goes in front of me. What, is, what am I aware of? What am I allowing? What am I creating? What am I holding the standards of? And that mm -hmm. holding that allows the feminine to, it allows the feminine to be present in all of her glory and all of her ecstasy and playing and uh, pleasure and joy. Hmm. Wow. So that, yeah, that, that's, that's helpful. Cause I know that, you know, there, there's this battle between like, we have to be one or the other, or at least maybe that's the interpretation I'm feeling like that, that, in, that, that there's only toxic masculinity or there's only like, you know, this and, and some kind of harmony there or allowance. I like that word. Yeah, allowance I, for it. I, yeah. I have, I feel called to say that, um, toxic masculinity, that's the problem is that mm -hmm. word that, that, that frame or that, uh, lens that we put on it. It's, it's wounded masculinity. It's unintegrated masculinity. The behavior itself appears toxic and it's uh, destructive, but the masculine himself, he is not toxic. He is wounded. He's been unheard. He's been unseen. He's never mattered. He has his stories running wild. And so to heal that masculine, that's when you step into divinity. Hmm. That's so, uh, yeah, that's so powerful. Um, you know, and, and just a subtle change of phrase there that is so meaningful though, because it's, it, it's demonstrating it. And I think that it's, it's easy just to dismiss something as toxic. Yeah. And, but it, you know, it, it's, it's more productive, more, I guess, more healing in nature to get curious about it and find out how we can, you know, dig yeah. in and, and make the right, right relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, I mean, let's just be real that there's a lot of men in the past, like in his historically, a lot of men have bred that toxic masculinity. Like they've yeah. created a, an environment where it is, quite toxic for feminine to be present. And now the pendulum is swinging and all of the things are changing. And, you know, women, women, because of that have stepped into this arena of personal development and transformation at a more rapid, intense, uh, committed rate than men have. And so the men are now almost falling behind in relationships. And this is what I do is mm -hmm. like the women are calling for the men to say, Hey, like, come on, come over here. Like get, get with it. And the men are like, oh, I don't know. Like, it's scary. Like, I, I, I don't know. Or I don't need to do the work or I'm good. Like I provide the money. I provide the house. Like there's a lot of like little insidious little stories and programs that are still hanging on that are mm -hmm. keeping men from really truly showing up in their relationship on a much bigger level than breadwinner. Yeah. Yeah. So when men, um, when men come to you for, for help or when you're coaching or anything like that, 
who who is typically coming to you and and how in what ways are you are you working with them to to help them get to that point that they want to get to yeah um so who typically comes to me is a, a man that his wife has seen my things on Instagram. <laughs> and, is, and so, so I have a, I always have a good, good deep conversation about, do you really want to be here or do you, are you here because your wife wants you to be here? Cause if your wife, if it's for the wife, it's not going to work. Right. You really have to like, if it's a no, okay, but like, let's be real. Um, yeah. I get guys that, you know, they're, they're not necessarily new on the spiritual or transformative path. Um, but they, they have a little bit of the language, they know what to do and they just can't seem to break free from the DNA in their body or not having the DNA, but the epigenetics maybe in their body of what's holding them back. And a lot of it is intimacy. A lot of it is connection and communication with their, with their feminine partner. Um, and like I said, like a lot of these women are already in the arena. Like women have been built for this forever. Like they've been sitting around, you know, witches, sitting around cauldrons and women in bathrooms at bars. Like they've been doing these little women's groups for centuries. And men have just been like, no, lone wolf, warrior. And right. so there's a lot of catching up to do. Um, and so these men that come to me are, are the ones that are admitting like, hey, I need to do something to catch up or just meet my woman where she is because mm-hmm. – is, what I'm doing is not working. It looks like a lot of nagging. It looks like um, a lot of disconnection, a lot of like tension in the household. And then the man gets isolated and angry and begins to shut down. And this cycle begins of the woman, her nagging is essentially, it's not nagging. It's asking him like, please, please do, do more. Like, come to me, come to me. And the man says, the man think tendency, tendency to think is like, if it's not, it's black or white. If I start and I suck at it, She's going to leave me anyway. So I don't want to live in that gray between like just starting and, and being where she is. And that's not true. What, what, what's true is that what the women want more than anything is to see effort. Hmm. Yeah. That, that, that's, that's, um, that kind of resonates with, with, with a lot of what I've heard, especially with regard to like how men, or at least, you know, I have this instinct and I don't want to speak for all men, but I know that this is true of a lot of men want to just fix the problem, yes. you know, and not hear it. And I'm yeah. just like, I'm always like, well, there's a solution here. Let's work through the solution. Let's find yeah. it. Let's find yeah. it. And that irritates the hell out of my wife, you know? Well, because, <laughs> yeah, it irritates, it irritates. And it also makes her feel rejected because yeah. it doesn't give her experience time to space to breathe. Yeah. Um, no one. And that's essentially telling her what to do. So mm-hmm. you have that's, and this is part of the masculine energy, the masculine, the container of holding it, like allow her to come, say, Hey, I, I like, maybe she's going to bitch for two days. Maybe. And you just got to, you can't be like, well, here's the solution. I got the solution. You know, like, <laughs> right. No, she's, she's, she has to invite you into that conversation. And when she yeah. does, it, that's the, when the solution is, is asked for and chosen. But if you, if you cut her off, cut her experience off, she will feel shut down, unheard, unseen, unloved. And, and that's when the bedroom falls apart. That's when the relationship falls apart. That's when everything is when, the man just wants to just be masculine about it, essentially. Yeah. And that's, that's, when, when, that's when a man that has a good masculine feminine balance inside of him is, can hold that container, can, can stand in that storm with her and, and just be there with her. Just be there. Just be there. I like yeah. that. So, so it comes to presence and, and, you know, I want to kind of t- touch on the breath work side of it too, because you do, you do breath work ex, uh, or breath work coaching and, and lots of retreats and things like that. And, um, can you talk a little bit how, how you do that? Cause there's a, a you know, there's like a million different breathwork exercises that I see mm-hmm. out there. What's, what's your approach and, and how are you helping people with that? Yeah. So, um, I've done, like I said, like I've, I've actually been doing breathwork since I was five years old. Uh, doctors would give me breathing yeah. techniques to do when I'm having an asthma attack, um, to essentially regulate myself. And again, didn't know it at the time, but looking back after doing a bunch of breathwork journeys myself in the transformational space and then doing a lot of education around it, I'm like, oh, I've been doing this for my whole life. Um, and so what I've done is uh, I've basically taken my experience, my education, my learnings, um, my own innate in- internal wisdom that I've, you know, the claircognizance that I have that um, a knowing of what needs to happen. And I've created this uh, transcend breathwork where it's designed to kind of not slowly, but it's designed to bring you to those edges and hold you there. Not for too long. I mean, the rounds are, you know, 12 to 15, maybe 20 minutes, but you're going to be at that edge and stay there. And then 
when you come out of that, you'll literally, people literally feel the space in their body. Like they literally, <laughs> like I've had people vision things about their future that they have been writing about for 10 years, like getting on a stage and speaking. One of my clients was, you know, I've, I've had this dream of speaking and I've never been able to see it. And during the breath work, he actually finally was able to get, because there's an edge there for him. He was able to get past that and actually hmm. saw himself on stage. Oh, wow. And so having these, uh, you know, holotropic or altered states of consciousness experiences um, allow us to, to see what we don't know is really what it's, what it's, what it comes down to. Because, you know, we as humans, our body keeps the score. Our body is the living library of everything we've experienced. Our mind can forget or justify or push down. But when we can shut our mind off for an hour or 45 minutes in a breathwork journey and allow the body to free itself of, of traumas and somatic experiences, that's when um, freedom in the body, freedom in the mind, and uh, freedom of trauma happens. Wow. So, yeah. So... This breathwork, the transcend breathwork method, yeah. it's holotropic. You you get it's, people it's, to it's their a, edges. Yeah, it's a little yeah. holotropic. It's a little shamanic. It's a little somatic. It's a little bit of, a little bit of everything that I because I you know I like them all, yeah. um, and I just I, I really created. So one of my big one of the big things I read in a book it's um, create what you would like to see in the world. Mm-hmm. So I created a breathwork journey, um, sixty to ninety minutes, depending on the the group and and what's what's required um, that I would like to go through. And, um, it's, it's very, very, uh, unique and it's very, very different than a lot of the things out there. But what it does is it, it allows the people to, um, go at their own pace and also really invites them to say, what's, what else is here? What else is mm-hmm. here? What else is here? Hmm. Well, I, I, and, and I love that, that whole idea around that because it, it brings a sense of intentionality to it. I mean, I've yeah. you know, practice breath work in the morning and, and and it's become a routine just to like say, okay, this is how I'm going to get energy this morning and wake up. Yeah. But the intention of actually getting to your edge or getting to the edges, expanding your, expanding that lane, so to speak, that you're talking about, there's a, there's a ton of power in that. I, and I think that there's, there's a lot of, I, I mean, and and it sounds like it's just, it's a similar journey to something you might look at with something like psychedelics, which is something else you work with too. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, you know, you can, you can reach a pretty psychedelic state through your breath because mm-hmm. when you do, so the breath work in the morning, the Wim Hof or the other stuff you do in the morning, that, that's great. I mean, it sets you up for the day. It, it regulates you. When you go into these like hour long journeys, what happens is that, uh, and a little bit in the Wim Hof in the morning, but what happens is that your body gets flooded with endo- endogenous DMT. Yeah. So you have essentially tapped into the God molecule that's produced in your own lungs. And so you're having a psychedelic experience produced by your own breath, produced by mm-hmm. yourself. And I think that's where a lot of the power of breath work lies is that you can't say, oh, it's because I was drinking ayahuasca or eating mushrooms. Like, no, no, no. This was all me. This was all my human body. And there's no thing that I can say, oh, that was just the mushrooms. No, it was all yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. I, 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 I love that, that approach because I mean, even just the, just, I, I haven't, I've never done a one hour breathwork session. It sounds incredible. Yeah. And, uh, but, but, you know, just the 20 minute Wim Hof sessions in general, I mean, they, they give you that kind of, that feeling of like, okay, well, I've gone to some kind of edge of my comfort zone there. Yeah. I don't know what's there, but yeah, this, there's definitely a lot, lot to that. That's, that's powerful. Um, and, and how do you, so are you doing those breath work, uh, uh, that transcend through retreats through, um, how, how are you doing yeah, those? It's, it's been, it's pretty much a through line. I do it at retreats. I do it as part of, so when people come sit with me for either mushrooms or Bufo, um, I work yeah. with them leading up to the ceremony. I work with them for the ceremony and I work with them for six or eight, six, six weeks after the ceremony for integration and breath work <laughs> is part of the integration process. Um, if it's at a retreat, there's going to be one day where it's breath work. So this breath work is powerful enough that, you know, like if you're at a, a mushroom or even an ayahuasca retreat and you're, you know, on a, you can't, you don't want to do breath work and the psychedelic on the same day. It's too much for the system. So sure. on one of the, one of the off days, uh, they'll, we'll do some breath work to, to really get them into that, that body. Get it, cause yeah. It's a very embodied experience. Yeah. And, so, yeah. and then I do it when I have uh, my one-on-one coaching clients, uh, I work with them for three months at a time. And we usually do uh, one, I, I aim for two breathwork sessions in that, in that two months or that three months, because it really does like it, it accelerates the growth so much. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's powerful. And 
how do psychedelics play into it? Because I know that that's obviously also kind of a, a unfortunately a controversial subject right now, even though there's it, tremendous evidence, tremendous power to yeah. the benefits of that, the psychedelic works. Um, uh, how do, how do those play into our role and who, who is best suited for something like that kind of treatment? Yeah. Um, you know, the role they play is, uh, th- they're the ultimate tool. It's the mm-hmm. ultimate, uh, hack, ch- uh, cheat code, you know, like, and that, that brings me to the point of like, who's el- who, who is, who are these right for? They are right for people that have done a shit ton of work as a human being. You know, like do, I did 15 years of work as a, like nothing, just me, therapies, mm-hmm. uh, 12 steps, like whatever it was, I was doing this work without any medicine, without any enhancements, without anything else. And I don't like to use the word earn a lot, but you almost have to earn the right to sit with these medicines. And it's, and the reason mm-hmm. I don't like to say the word earn is because it's really what it is, is that if you don't do enough work as a human being, they're not going to help you. Yeah. They potentially will make it worse. Mm-hmm. So the people that are eligible for this are the people that have really done, handled and looked at all the things that as a human being, they are absolutely aware of, they know about depression, mm-hmm. anxiety, addiction, uh, marriage problems, whatever it is. And they've gotten to the point where the glass ceiling, they've hit the glass ceiling. Like, you know, I've, I've looked at everything I can possibly think of. So there's some, what, what's going on there is there's something I'm either not seeing, not knowing or not feeling. And mm-hmm. so these psychedelics will open up your world to what you're not seeing, knowing, or feeling and allow you to see, know, and feel what it is that's going to get you to the next level. So if your trajectory is, you know, upward, when you, and you've, you've gone for the five or maybe 10 years or three at least uh, doing the work and the psych, introducing the psychedelics at the right point will hockey stick your growth. Hmm. Um, it'll send you on a new trajectory that you didn't even follow because you've stopped operating in everything you know and you were open and willing to see what you didn't know. So like depression, yeah. great. I know that I, I know that depression is a thing for me. I experienced depression and I experienced depression again and I experienced depression again. Okay, great. So there's, if it keeps coming back like that and the template and the, and the cycles are there, there's something like, why, why are you holding on to depression? Because depression, honestly, depression is a very safe place to exist. So, mm-hmm. so, okay, maybe I'm afraid of, um, I have a real thing that people are evil. And I don't want in the world. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to get depressed so that I can stay in my house. And so until you can look past the depression or the anxiety or the addiction and see what's actually there, nothing's going to change. Yeah, that's, that's, and, and I'm, you answered my, my next question too about that, because, because obviously one of the concerns is, is abuse of those psychedelics and, and, to say that like you you need to do some of the work first or, mm. or that that's the person it's meant for that's pretty powerful i've been intrigued about psychedelics for very you know for for the last few years just reading and listening to things and quite frankly they were always something i was truly frightened of i never did them in college yeah. because i was like i am like prime i'm prime number one for a bad trip because i i, I have anxiety yeah you know i it's like an eight-hour trip and i don't want to have an eight-hour bad trip with my friends so yeah yeah <laughs> it is is so it's it's people for people who did the work. Is there anybody it's, you know, I mean, in that, in that scenario, should, should we worry about a bad trip in that, in that sense? Um, I mean, no. Um, I would say that it is something that is, I, so the reason I say no is because I've never seen it. Um, mm-hmm. because what happens with bad trips is that either the set and setting was wrong. There was an expectation that you had an expectation and it didn't get met or you weren't properly prepared to do that. Mm-hmm. So with all those things being taken care of proper set and setting, proper facilitator, proper intentions, not expectations and doing the proper prep work, there's mm-hmm. no risk of a bad trip. Yeah. You're only yeah, going to yeah. be open to, and, and the knowing that you're going to get everything you need, not necessarily what you want and being open and willing to say, okay, I know I need to, I need to, I need to see what I need to see. Mm-hmm. And that, that is where you take a bad trip off the table. Gotcha. Yeah. So, I mean, really just be open-minded to the experiences. And then, and you've mentioned in, in a lot of, you know, your, uh, um, in, in what you've talked about it, that. It's not necessarily the, the trip itself. It's the integration process afterwards. It's all the work you're going to do after. Yeah. So can you kind of expand on that a little yeah. bit? Yeah. So um, 
Yeah, it's not just the integration. It's I, I believe there's three three phases to any psychedelic ceremony, any breathwork yeah. ceremony too. Um, it is the preparation, making sure that there's no stone left unturned, uh, leading up to the. And that's why I work with people for three weeks before the ceremony, because we we I coach you through whatever's coming up for you. Because really, mm-hmm. what's happening in those three weeks is that the medicine is tapping in and saying, "This is what you need to pay attention to right now," and to mm-hmm. cultivate the awareness around that sets you up for full knowing, full comfort full safety going into the ceremony. That's a one that gets 100% of our attention. The ceremony itself, it's either, um, it, it's a five hours for the bufo. It's a full day for the mushrooms. I do four day retreats where we go deep into the breath work, the mushrooms and the bufo, um, whatever that ceremony looks like that at that moment, 100% of our attention. And then we get to integration where integration is, I'm not going to say it's more vital than any other, but it is very, very important because I've Mm -hmm. met people that have had these experiences and then had nightmares for two years because they never had a place to integrate what happened in the ceremony. And, 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 you know, integration, a lot of people think, oh, it has to be journaling, meditation, four hours a day and walking in the woods. Like integration, really? How well do you get back into your life with this new information? How, how well are, how adaptable do you remain? How, how aware of your old patterns do you remain? How willing to change are you? So it's, it's not necessarily like, how do I get to like stay in a retreated place? But it's like, how well do I, uh, go back and, and, and be a better human? Cause if we do yeah. all this work without the intention of like, I'm, I'm working to be a better human here for myself, for my loved ones, for everybody. That's what integration really is. There's no right or wrong way to do it. The only wrong way to do it is to not do it. Yeah, um, but other than that, um, it, it's it it takes. I mean, three months, six months, depending on the the psychedelic you're doing. But giving it the space and giving yourself the compassion and the grace to to allow to be witnessed first, and then to allow and realign everything. That's what integration is. Wow. Yeah. And I and so from what I've seen and just what I've researched is that there are some incredible transformations that come from that psychedelic work is that what you've seen as well and yeah. your work I, what i've seen yeah. what i've experienced i mean it's absolutely the most life-changing thing i've ever done in my life i've ever wow. done and that and i say that because i did a shit ton of work as a human being before i got there like yeah. i didn't oh I didn't, for sure yeah i didn't leave leave rehab and go right and do start doing psychedelics like i i would not recommend that yeah yeah there's so much so much more i want to dig into on that but i know we're at the top of the hour here and i want to be respectful of your time certainly i got i got time (laughs) (laughs) but um no i i'm i'm and i'm so grateful for it um and i guess i I want to make sure that people know where they can find you how they can get in touch with you how they can come to some of your retreats and and do some of your breathwork stuff how where, where can people find you uh the best place to find me is instagram uh, at Sam Gibbs Morris on Instagram. And then from there I have links to all my other stuff. Uh, the, the three things I do are, um, I do uh bufo ceremonies. So that's the five MEO DMT. I do uh, mushroom ceremonies and these are all both one off. And then I do these four day retreats where we, you come in, you do breath work on the first day. We do bufo on the second day, mushrooms. And then the fourth day is all about this integration where we set, I, I call it the integration accelerator where we get you all these practices and rituals in place so that you can go, and really land back in your life. And then beyond that, I also do uh, the one-on-one coaching containers for men. That's amazing. And and so can you kind of touch on what the difference is between, say, doing the bufo, the mushrooms uh, versus the breath work? If, yeah, if I'm being I mean, decisive on that, what do you do? Again, breath work is, it's a support. It's it's really, it's, it's sure. very important. It's very useful. Um, you know, it, it's, it's, it doesn't get you, it doesn't quite get you to where a bufo or mushrooms will get you. So that's why I do it on the first day is to, is really what it does is it opens you up. It yeah. opens up the container. It opens up you. It, it shows you some things. And then we, we go into the bufo, which is a very fast acting 20 minutes intense. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the most intense psychedelic on the planet and it only lasts about 20 minutes. And then we go with a full mushroom day the next day where you get time to be in the, um, in the psychedelic space and really process through and I help you, I coach you through and I'm there with you the whole day, uh, walking <laughs> you through everything that's coming up and guiding you that's along incredible. the process. That's incredible. And, it, and yeah, so, it, so it's a journey through the, those entire three days, like with, with different, different substances, different intentions. And is that, is that with a group of people or is it just kind of one, um, one-on-one? It, What's that look like? It, it will be a group of people eventually. Right now they're just one-on-one. Yeah. Nice. Um, 
I, I need to find a, a co-facilitator to do it with a group of people. So sure. uh, just, and that's for safety and, and being able to handle that. But I'm looking at next year launching it for probably it'll be like um, 14 to 16 people. And we'll wow. maybe go to Costa Rica or something like that. Um, right now, these are like I, I see a lot of value right now in the in the private because it allows the person to come and not have to worry about other energies, uh, the commingling mm-hmm. of a wife or a friend or even a stranger. Um, it really allows um, that person to be the tensions there, and they get to really relax into their own energy and see what's there for them. That's incredible! Wow. Well, well, thank you so much for for shedding some light on that. And and I know it's a it's you know, at least in this, or at least in the last few years, it seems to be getting a little bit more, less stigmatized as far as the psychedelic research. And yeah. I'm so glad because there's so much power in it. And, yeah. and, um, and, and you're doing really, really great work. I'm really grateful for you and the transformation you've made and the gifts now that you're sharing for the world. Thank you very much, Sam. And well, thank, thank you for joining that. me today. Yeah. Yeah. Thank and you. If, if you, yeah. And if you'd like to reach out to Sam or if you'd like to get in touch with him, at Sam Gibbs Morris on Instagram. Yep. That's going to help you find anything else. And, um, and yeah, thanks for being here, Sam. And Adam, thank you so much for having me. It's such a great conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. And, uh, hopefully we can catch, do get, go a little deeper next time. I appreciate yeah, it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And everyone else out there, thank you so much for being here. We will see you next time. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the flow over fear podcast. If you're enjoying this show, please do me a favor and hit the subscribe button. I will be so grateful if you do, and I'll look forward to bringing you more value in our next episode. I'll see you then.